What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We are awaiting the minutes from the last FOMC meeting. They are due out today at 2 p.m. Eastern time, although we have a good sense of what will probably be the headline here. And it will have to do with the expansion of the balance sheet that will not by any means be called quantitative easing uh, by Fed officials. Joining us here in our interactive broker studios is Phil Blancato. He is chief executive officer for Leidenberg Thalman Asset Management Funds. Uh, and I, I want to start there, Phil, the idea that that the Fed seems to be poised to expand the balance sheet in short order, according to what Jay Powell said yesterday. But this is not necessarily part of any sort of easing. Do you buy that? Well, I think he said clearly this is not QE profoundly more than once, actually. I, I agree with that. For a minute, I would give the Fed credit on this front that we took a $3 trillion balance sheet and reduced it down to 1.4. And in that process, there were going to be some hiccups along the way. And I think this is the one thing we can point to, that they got to where they wanted to be. They want to where they the right amount of cash on hand to be backing up the reserves, backing up the banking system. And now they've reached where, okay, we probably went a little too far to the tune of 150 to $200 billion. And then that would solve this problem. I don't think there's a systemic problem. Also had a little bit of the calendar involved. Also had a little bit to do with how much banks are willing to loan to each other. So the Fed's doing what it's supposed to do, which is fix these disruptions in the market. I'm okay with what happens. I don't think it's a big deal. So, Phil, the expectation is that the uh, the Fed will continue to ease uh, maybe at the end of th this month. A counter-argument, however, might be, you know what, do they really need to? The economy's, you know, pretty doing pretty well. We Yes, we know manufacturing's weak, but the consumer's still hanging in there. Isn't it better to save our ammunition for later if and when the economy perhaps weakens further in 2020 or 2021? Yeah, to the chairman's comments yesterday that the U.S. economy is actually pretty good. There's nothing hot in the economy. And I would agree on both fronts. When your consumer is gainfully employed at a, at a historical level of lows of unemployment, you're seeing wages, albeit a bit modestly, but still going higher. It's hard for me to understand why we feel this dramatic need to cut to your point, save it for later. Now, I would say where the Fed funds rate is higher than the tenure, that concerns me. I'd rather see those flat. Why? I want to see more stimulus on both sides of the curve, not just the short end of the curve. So for that reason, I could see another quarter point coming out. That makes sense to me. But beyond that, why use up that ammunition? Now use up that firepower when you might need it if something drastic happens down the road. So what are you buying right now? That's a great question. For me, I still want to rotate towards First of all, in your equity portfolios, we're up over 20% or near there on the S&P 500, give or take a point or two. Take some profit. I think we've forgotten about Rule 101. You're in October. You've made a lot of money. Take some money off the table. Then rotate towards two places. First, short-term fixed income is yielding over 2%. That's a panacea right now. 
you're doing really well by hiding out in your short reserves. Nothing wrong with waiting for this to resolve itself, whether it's the tariff battle or something along those lines. But add to that, where your opportunities are, you could still go into that staple sector, albeit carefully, and find those quality names that are going to earn you income, whether it's a Costco, whether it's a Walmart. You could even look at something like a, a tech company that's got a value bent to it, like a Microsoft, or even to a degree, to a degree, Apple, who has had really spectacular no, no data come out recently, where you, but you're getting paid a nice dividend. So that's where you rotate now. So, you know, the we have the trade delegation from China uh, coming into Washington. The negotiations start tomorrow. What do you think the market's kind of discounting right now as it relates to trade? Because that's been one of the big issues that, that's been whipping the market around. One of my favorite topics, I think there is this expectation that this is going to get solved in the blink of an eye. I think that's really a, a reach. Uh, there, there's just too many moving. I don't components. know too many people who are actually expecting an easy solution at this point. Well, here's why I think that. Look at the market's reaction just today. I mean, granted, today's a light yes. volume day, but we watch these crazy, minuscule headlines, and we're up 200, down 200. And I'm saying to myself, there must be some enigma of people out there that think that this is going to get solved instantly and it's just not going to work that way. Whether it's the election cycle, whether it's China wanting to solve this on intellectual uh, property issue, or it's just what the next president may or may not, all of these components, I think this is a multi-year issue, not a multi-month issue. And for that reason, we're going to be stuck with this for a while. I want to ask you a question that I've been thinking about all morning, which is at a time of an everything rally yet again, it's not a comfortable everything rally with a lot of rotation under the surface, but if you look at the averages, it is a very strong performance nonetheless in bonds and equities. What's the argument as an active manager at that point when the Fed's basically backstopping markets, suppressing volatility, and forcing people to do things that they're uncomfortable with and into assets that are gonna keep rallying even if they shouldn't be? This is Behavioral Finance 101. My gosh, we're up 9.5% on the ag, nearly 20% on the S&P. Take your money off the table. Be thrilled you made this kind of money this year and rotate to a neutral position because of the point you made. Whether you call this a Potemkin market, whether it's financed by the Fed, artificial earnings, it's time to take some money off the table. Yeah, but the Fed is still going to be backstopping the market over the next couple months and into next year. So my question is, you could take out you know, your money, but then when you put it back, it might actually be at an even higher point, right? Neutral, not overweight. There's, there, the answer to that is don't go underweight, go neutral. And by that, you're right about the Fed, but I don't think the Fed could stimulate enough to really drive us, drive us higher. The reality is, the, the, the canary in the coal mine here is, do we get a business recession that impacts unemployment and causes consumer confidence to erode? So far, it hasn't happened. And if it doesn't happen, we're going to trade along in this bound for a while until we get a catalyst higher or lower. And for me, I don't want to take that political or that economic risk. So neutral is a lot safer than overweight. We are coming up on earnings uh, starting next week. It's something we haven't talked about, probably for because there's been so much more on the macro front to talk about. But earnings outlook isn't that great. I don't think the earnings necessarily are something that supports equities. How are you thinking about the equity markets going into earnings? The most important earnings season in three years. Simply okay. put, this well, is the I one asked. that matters. This is the gorilla. Because the first two we got through, whether they ratcheted down expectations or we somehow surpassed it, and I'm less worried about the E. I'm more worried about the revenue side, the sales side. If we can get positive sales momentum, plus 2 plus 3%, we're going to survive this. Because then we get into the fourth quarter of the year. We get into last year the presidential cycle, which tend to be stimulative. Fourth quarter tends to be a big buying season, as we all know, holidays, Santa Claus rally, blah, blah, blah. So if we can get through this earnings season, we're going to be okay. 
But the key is, if we go negative on sales and earnings, it could be very problematic for markets. I could see us giving back a good 5 to 8% would not surprise me at all. Phil Blancato, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you coming and sharing you. your thoughts. Phil's the Chief Executive Officer for Ladenberg Talman Asset Management Funds, braving the rain here in New York City, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive uh, Broker Studio, giving us some thoughts on the markets. Yeah. I want to shift gears to the bankrupt utility in California, PG&E. It has come up with a new defense against wildfires, simply shutting down. Joining us now, Kit Connellidge, uh, Senior Industrials and Utilities Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Is this a viable solution to basically just say to everybody, hey guys, you know what? The risk of fire is high, so we're just going to shut down your energy for a couple days. And uh, just, you know, we're not responsible for any fires because we're not operating. Well, we're, we're going to find out how viable it is, obviously. But I think it's uh, to my mind it's it's clearly in the context of uh we lost billions and billions of dollars and we went bankrupt by having the electricity on uh in in these conditions right so that you know there's i don't think there's any way to tell from the outside are they being quote unquote too cautious or or overly you know, aware of possibilities. Is there a 1% chance that something could happen or a 10% chance? Obviously, that would, that would make a big difference. But they're clearly erring on the side of, of caution and trying not to burn down right. whole counties the way they've done before. Well, I've seen the map of the, uh, the outage area, um, and it's, just, it's a huge part of the, you know, the, the central northern part of the state could impact a lot of people. Is there any precedent for this happening before? Uh, I think there, on on a smaller scale, there's definitely been these kinds of situations. I mean, utilities do it to some extent a lot of the time when there are floods and other you right. know problematic situations where there are live wires in you know that could really hurt people. Is is it just? The, up to PG&E or the utilities to decide when and how and to, they do it, or do they have to get approval from the regulators? It's almost like, hey, who's watching out for the homeowners and who, or people who need electricity? Uh, my understanding is they can do it on their own. They're the experts. They have to, but they certainly have people potentially second-guessing them. If they keep doing it uh, consistently and enough people feel like it it wasn't a problem and they're making it a problem uh and especially if bad things happen to people like medical devices go you know go off and can't be helped and so on then they will have that uh you know that fallout from from other people yeah and then there is this that the director of the climate and energy policy program at stanford university estimated that the economic impact could rise to as much as 2.6 billion dollars for pg and e's blackout for just two days so there is a sort of economic uh bleed through in addition to just the inconvenience i have to wonder though why is it that they have to put the uh, the the area at risk of a fire with their with their infrastructure? I mean, it, I don't understand exactly. Are there just live wires next to trees hanging right. out there? Th I that's, mean, that's basically it. it, it is that uh, Northern California is an especially um, problematic area to have big industrial operations, and there's there's a lot of mountains, there's a lot of trees, there's a lot of you know steep. 
uh, mudslide prone the areas. Happens. There's a lot of, of towns in remote areas. So <clears throat> there's a lot of wires going all over the place if you want to have wires, you know, that, that go to where people are as opposed to having people run their own generator or their own rooftop solar. So arguably that would be kind of a, a better solution someday, but obviously we're talking about hundreds of thousands of customers, millions of, of people being affected by this. It's not gonna happen overnight if they did fix it that way. So real quick, um, Kit, just give us a sense of how PG&E is doing right now. I know they're, they're still in bankruptcy. That's correct. And so how are they? What's the status well, of that? Well, you know, everybody um, is has their eye on June 30th next year, which is when uh, they have to be out of bankruptcy if they're going to take advantage of the uh, multi-billion dollar um, fund that the state has set up. So they're going back and forth with the... Uh, victims of the fires with the bondholders uh, over potentially reaching some settlement at some point here. Uh, it, you know, it's an intricate uh, process in bankruptcy, but it looks for now like the current shareholders of PG&E have the, their own uh, exclusivity still in place, uh, but, you know, the judge ultimately makes that decision. And that's coming up? Uh, Judge, any day okay. he's supposed to make a decision on whether they keep exclusivity. Uh, and that would, you know, tend to lean in one direction or the other to the, you know, outside bondholders or the right. shareholders. Okay. Kit Connolich, thanks so much for joining us. Kit is a senior industrials and utilities analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Joining us here in our Bloomberg uh, Interactive Broker Studio, getting the update on PG&E and potentially and shutting down power for, you know, half a million homes. And there are all these images of people going to grocery stores and stocking up on flashlights. <laughs> right. I was thinking to myself, though. I mean, what if somebody lights a candle to get light during a high fire period <laughs> because they don't have electricity? I mean, my mind was going a little little yeah, wild. Exactly. We'll see how this goes. I, I suspect that maybe a little bit of an ex experiment here to see how it goes. Uh, but clearly, the liability has been major for those utilities out there. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Bloomberg reported earlier today that Turkey did begin their offensive into Syria after the U.S. said that it was going to uh, withdraw. Now there are reports that there are rockets being shot from Syria toward Turkey. Joining us now is Ali Sinar, president of the Turkish Heritage Organization. Uh, Ali, thank you so much for joining us. I want to just start with what has Turkey's role traditionally been with Syria and given uh, some of the turmoil that we've seen in that nation, its government? 
Sure. As you know, there is a war going on over six, seven years in Syria, and Turkey is one of the countries that suffering from the Syria war. Turkey is hosting over 3.6 million Syrian refugees, and ISIS attacked 14 times to Turkey and lost 304 lives by ISIS attacks. So Turkey is fighting against terrorism for many years, and Turkey had a national security concern from the neighborhood. That's why this operation was needed uh, by the Turkish government. And with the Trump administration decision, they gave the green light to have Turkey's operation in Syria. Uh, Ali Sinar, I wonder if you could j just give us a sense of what the goals are, are of the Turkish government with this operation. Sure. So the operation will neutralize terror threats against Turkey. When we talk about terror threats, as you know, YPG is linked to PKK, which is a terrorist organization recognized by United States and European Union. So Turkey is saying that Syrian Kurds, labeled as a Syrian Kurds, but it's a terrorist organization. So Turkey feels the threat from YPG, which is linked to PKK. So the aim is to neutralize the terror threats in Syria. The second objective is led to establishment of a safe zone. That way, there can be a facilitation, the return of Syrian refugees to their homes. As I said, there are over 3.6 million Syrian refugees, and it's a cost of $40 billion to Turkey. So Turkey wants the Syrian refugees to go back to their homeland. Therefore, this operation will also help them to go back to their own country. Ali, how much involvement are you expecting from some Turkish allies? Uh, I'm thinking about, for example, Russia and the idea that there has been speculation uh, that, that, that Vladimir Putin will want to get involved and help Turkey out in order to get sort of a foothold in a strategically beneficial area. I know today President Erdogan and Putin spoke on the phone and gave some information about the operation. But overall, when we look at it, Turkey and Russia are not on the same page in Syria. Russia is supporting Assad. And because of the Idlib crisis, Russia and Iran are behind of this Idlib disaster. So I think Turkey and United States have more same agenda in the region. I don't think Russia is uh, happy with the Turkey's operation. But at the same time, Russian troops are not in that region. I mean, we are talking about the operation in northern Syria, which is domained by YPG, which is linked to PKK. So as I said, this, I think, uh, Russia and Turkey uh, partnership, I don't think it's working in Syria, and we shouldn't be. Uh, so uh, I know Turkey informed uh, President Putin, but at the same time, they are not also happy with the operation. Ali, if the U.S. and Turkey are more aligned when it comes to Syria than many people think, why hasn't this happened earlier? Uh, because Turkey many times explained the concern about YPG, which is linked to PKK, terrorist organization, and Turkey asked United States not support YPG or train them or arm them. Uh, Turkey also offered to uh, fight against ISIS in the region, but United States chose to work with YPG. And YPG is clearly 
working with PKK, they are linked to each other. That's why Turkey felt a threat and it didn't work out. But at the same time, United States and Turkey wants Assad to be removed. And both countries, both NATO allies are also working on Idlib crisis. But unfortunately for the northern Syria, two NATO allies didn't agree uh, on YPG. Ali, just quickly, 30 seconds. What is the expected duration of this military operation? Uh, my expectation is at least two to three weeks. I know President Erdogan will be meeting President Trump on November 13th. So till then, I think we, we might see a clear outcome or some results out of this operation. But if it takes longer, uh, it's, it will be bad for Turkey because there is a bad smear campaign against Turkey for this operation. So I don't think it's going to take uh, for many months to complete this operation. Ali Sinar, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Ali is the president of the Turkish Heritage Organization, joining us on the phone, giving us his thoughts uh, on the operation taking place just beginning today, Turkey uh, entering uh, Syria to uh, uh, retake uh, some territory there, as Mr. Sinar uh, explained to us. We are very lucky to have with us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios, Noah Gottiner, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Duff and Phelps, which advises uh, a whole host of private equity firms and is also a recipient, has been a recipient of private equity funding itself and has grown as a result of it. So uh, a great bird's eye view into the market at a time of growing emphasis on it, certainly uh, by way of the Business Week cover uh, feature on private equity this week. Noah, I I want to start with the idea that we're seeing so many companies that are going, that are moving from private to, to public, seeing a rocky road, sure. and whether there's any significance to that. What do you think the main takeaway should be? Well, I think that um, you have seen some difficult situations, Lisa, with public offerings that have not done well. And I think that uh, what the public has woken up to is they want to see a path to profitability. It's no longer great just to keep losing money. Uh, it's okay if there's a way to, be, to become profitable and to have a, a profitable model. I think there's also right now, as the exuberance has died down, a much greater focus on good governance and transparency. Those things kind of got lost in all the excitement of the heady public offerings, but now people are focused on that. So, Noah, when I look at the private equity business, um, it seems to me I've been on Wall Street almost 30 years. It's kind of the, one of the last bastions where you can make outsized returns. Um, one of the concerns, however, is there's a lot of money sloshing around in the private equity world. Every time we open the paper, look at the Bloomberg Terminal, there's another multi-billion dollar fund being raised. My concern, I think some concern of a lot of investors, is too much money ch chasing too few deals, pushing valuations up. How do you view the market right now? Well, Paul, that's absolutely right. More money has come into the industry. It, private equity, in, in, in a way, is almost a victim of its own success. It's done well. It's generated great returns. And money has kept flowing into private equity. That's caused prices to go up. And that's put pressure on private equity firms to really find different ways to create value on their investments and really focus on growth. So the old days of just cut, cutting costs and getting the low-hanging fruit isn't sufficient to generate the returns that private equity needs to, to generate today. 
So I want to dig in a little bit to some of the sectors and where some of your clients are seeing opportunities mm -hmm. right now. I was speaking with James Gellert, chairman and CEO of Rapid Ratings, and he was saying uh, that there are a, a whole slew of companies that are probably overvalued in the private space, particularly within the energy sector. Or uh, Actually, no, he didn't say energy. Tech and biotech, he said. Mm -hmm. Energy, he actually sees an opportunity given how beaten up it's gotten. Uh, are you hearing something similar from your clients that they're trying to steer, uh, steer clear from tech and biotech names at this point? Well, listen, whenever valuations begin to rise dramatically in certain sectors, people become more cautious. But the reality is there are opportunities in every sector, in every slice of the economy. And private equity guys are really good at finding those areas where there, there is the possibility of transformation and creating value. So I wouldn't rule out any sectors uh, where, uh, where, where there may be opportunities for private equity. One of the things I've noticed in the private equity over, over the years is, uh, boy, the big get bigger, whether it's you know, KKR or Blackstone or Carlyle Group. Is there, is there still a market for kind of the smaller private equity firms doing smaller deals, or is it just all the spoils are going to the big players? No, that's a great question, Paul. I think it, it, it comes back to that, to that earlier question. Is there going to be a shakeup in private equity? And obviously, um, the, the higher performing firms are always going to do well. The lower performing firms are going to fall away or may not be in business. But there's another um, uh, bifurcation, I would say, in private equity, which is firms will either get very big like you described, and have uh, multi-strategies around uh, capital deployment and become global. Uh, or if they're smaller, they'll probably be very specialized around certain industries and create their competitive advantage through the intellectual capital that they have, whether it's financial services or technology or software or whatever. One thing I wonder about with the big companies, uh, the big private equity firms, is how difficult it is for them to find big enough companies to deploy cash to. Because they have so much money, they have to do bigger deals yeah. in order to make a dent. Has that been problematic? It, I, you know, I would say maybe. Uh, they definitely have to write bigger checks. Uh, they have to find bigger companies to buy. But, you know, it's a big, brave world out there. There's a well, lot there. But there's a lot of, uh, there has been mm -hmm. talk that mm -hmm. some of the biggest private companies get the biggest amounts of money, new money, mm -hmm. uh, they get flooded at them just because of this dynamic, because mm -hmm. they're big enough to receive it. I, I mean, what's the fear that it sort of creates behemoths that aren't ready to be behemoths yet? Listen, I think the, those, those fears, I guess, are legitimate. Um, but there are opportunities for private equity with big companies, small companies. Uh, there are ways to navigate. So, no, one of the trends I thought was interesting, I've seen at KKR, is they've brought a lot of the capital markets operations in-house. Mm -hmm. um, I guess trying to save fees on what they, they, they pay to the investment banks. Um, do you think this is a trend across the industry? Because I haven't necessarily seen others do it to the extent KKR has, but I would think it would create some conflicts with their investment banking sell side, you know, customers, partners, however you want to term the relationship. Yeah. Listen, uh, going back uh, to the previous point, private equity firms have to find a way to distinguish themselves, to differentiate themselves. KKR has, has as you described, 
used that strategy, which actually has worked very effectively for them. And I actually haven't seen uh, that conflicts holding them up in any way. And other firms like Blackstone have become sort of diversified asset managers and have done a fantastic job as well. So there are different ways of, of skinning the baby. Noah, thank you so much for joining yeah. us. Really appreciate yeah. your thoughts. Noah Gottdiener, Chairman and CEO of Duff & Phelps, giving us the lay of the land in the financial services business, business focusing on the private equity uh, uh, portion of the financial services industry. And it continues to be an asset class uh, that just uh, really attracts a tremendous amount of capital uh, from all parts, whether it's pension funds or endowments. It just seems to be one of those asset classes, I think, as people look for yield and return, uh, increasingly looking to private equity. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.